Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to begin by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to remind and encourage you to continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know, even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, why not follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page? So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely and sincerely appreciated. So thank you. Okay, let's get on with this show, shall we? My guest today, Mark Workington, is a long-term member of the Real Estate Investment Network. He is a lawyer who has been on the Vancouver Rain stage many times over the years, sharing his legal insights and supporting Rain members' success. He is the founding and former managing partner of the law firm Lindley Wellwood, and his practice covers a wide spectrum of expertise, including the many areas uh, and nuances of real estate, business transactions, financing, corporate and commercial law. He holds a BA, magna cum laude, from the University of Saskatchewan, and an LLB from the University of British Columbia Law School. Mark has been involved for many years with the Canadian Bar Association, Abbotsford and District Bar Association, as a guest lecturer at professional legal training courses. Mark is actively involved in his community, and in 2016, he was appointed to the Abbotsford Police Board and is a member of the Police Committee. Most recently, in March 2017, he was elected as president of the Abbotsford Chamber of Commerce for a two-year term. He and his wife, Brenda, live in Abbotsford. They are the proud parents of two amazing children who are currently enrolled as French immersion students, the oldest of whom is attending McGill University. There is a lot to talk about and so much to learn from this man. Mark Workington, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So great to have you on the show. You're in studio, almost poolside studio. I've just moved it a little bit, but we can still call it the poolside studio. Yeah, it's awesome. And your pool's out there next time I want to be in the pool doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, Mark, I've known you for a number of years, uh, primarily through Rain, but we've had the opportunity to socialize together and I've gotten to know you and that's great. 
listeners don't know you. I like to open with the question of 30-second elevator pitch. If somebody says, Mark, what do you do? What's your answer to that question? What do I do? I'm a lawyer, do lots of real estate, look after real estate investors uh, and business loss. I look after lots of businesses and all their issues that come from that. That's the professional, what do I do? I'm also a dad, uh, husband, and uh, really involved in the Abbotsford community. Yeah. Now we are based, you are based in Abbotsford. You are president of Chamber of Commerce? Correct. And how long you, this is, is that a one year stint or how long you've been doing that? No, well, I've been on the, I've been involved in chamber for about uh, six years, but the, the presidency is two years. So it, I'm uh, a little over halfway through that, that ends next spring. So in two years is a, is a bit unusual in that world. So it's a, it's a long-term haul. Yeah. Now I want to dig into all sorts of aspects. Number one, your lawyer, business owner. Secondly, you've done some real estate investing and well, some, I mean, gosh, that's always relative. What's some, you know, uh, I have people that own multiple doors and they go, I've done some and somebody who owns one door and goes, I've done some. So yeah. we're going to dig into whatever mm -hmm. that means a little bit. Primarily though, you've worked with a lot of real estate investors and business owners. You're president of the chamber of commerce of Abbotsford and father, husband, all of those things. So let's go back because I love to see the history. Now in the context of the everyday millionaire, You've enjoyed a, a nice degree of success. I won't even call it high or low. You've just, you got some great success and you've been on a journey and you've been on your path and in seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. That's why I've got you on this show, but I want to know a little bit about your background. I love going back into how did somebody achieve the results you did? What were you, were you born with a you know, silver spoon in your mouth, the lucky sperm club. You just had all these cool things happen to you. And so take me back because yeah. you're, you mm -hmm. are born and raised in Abbotsford. Is that the, is that the case? A little more complicated than that. My family, both sides come from Abbotsford, but I was actually born, I was born in Langley. I was raised in a bunch of other places like California and Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, but always wanted to move back here. It's a bit like the hometown I didn't grow up in. So I, I'm back here. My parents live here and I've uh, been here for, well, probably about 20 years. Where did you go to school? Where did you end up going to school and then university? Uh, high school was in Moose Jaw. We used to make fun of Moose Jaw, but then we had to move there. So I had to stop making <laughs> so fun can't, of it. They can't make fun of Moose yeah, Jaw anymore. Yeah, yeah. now I'm a yeah, Moose Jaw. That's okay. Uh, that was high school. We went up, uh, literally went up north to uh, University of Saskatchewan, did my first degree there, and uh, and then out to UBC for law. Now, why was law your path? Why Was that something that you grew up thinking that I just want to be a lawyer? When did yeah. law show up for you as being the path you wanted to take? Uh, it, growing up around the dinner table, we'd argue about lots of stuff and my parents would kind of call it the lawyer's club. And I thought, oh, lawyer, I, I don't think I could do that, but that'd be kind of cool. Uh, and it was always in the back of my mind, probably as an option. And I had a few things I was, I was thinking of. I was a good student, uh, in high school and I liked math of all things. Like I would volunteer to do math quizzes and stuff. I thought I would be an engineer, uh, started going down that path and didn't really quite feel like the right fit. Uh, so I finished a degree and then I thought, well, now would be the time if I want to do this law thing, I should just make it happen. So um, I had a year off between the, my degree and I took a year off and then I, I was uh, accepted to UBC. So I went there. Uh, I would call it kind of one of the top three things I was thinking about. And it sort of turned out that way. And uh, I'm the first lawyer in my extended family. And I know I was not born with any kind of a silver spoon in my mouth. What was, were your, what was your parents? What was their background? Uh, my dad's a pastor. So oh. we, we moved around to different places because first he went to divinity school and then 
California. For some reason, he didn't stay there. Would have been cool if he did, but yeah, uh, what the heck? Yeah, no, but back to Edmonton. So, <laughs> did and, you spend time in Edmonton? Oh yeah, I yeah. didn't know that about you. I know we got this Edmonton thing, don't oh, we? Oh right. So we lived in we lived in the south in the Malmo Southgate area when it was still on the edge of the city. Wow. Yeah, and uh, so Edmonton uh, for a few years, and then Statler, Alberta. My dad pastored a church there, and then Moose Jaw he pastored a church there. So we were we were like the military family, but doing God's work. Wow. So are you, are you Christian today? Do you consider yourself yeah. Christian? Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and a different way to put it is to put that is to say, you know, I, I'm part of the, the faith community, person of faith. I kind of like it. that phrase. Cool. That's yeah. a cool phrase. I like yeah. that as well. And what was the impact of, I'm, I'm just interested in, in being, you know, growing up. Was, what about your mom? My mom, um, delightful, lovely, one of the nicest people that I know. And, uh, she's, so she sort of fulfilled that traditional pastor's wife role. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're involved in the church growing up and, uh, my, I've got an older brother and sister and so family of five and, uh, yeah, it was a pretty good upbringing. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So what was it, do you think that being a great student and, uh, I mean, you're a stand-up guy in the community, your, your upbringing from a pastor is, do you think that really set the moral standard and gave you the moral compass did you see yourself stand out that way? I'm just curious yeah. as to yeah. I, that because that wasn't my background. Yeah. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> I yeah. we'll go into that. Some I, was, other time. I was like magnetic north that went somewhere else. It was crazy. <laughs> Tell me about all I that. was hanging out with a magnet. So anyway, so my my question about that is is that did was that really your moral compass and that upbringing and that you understood sure. in today? Because at yeah. some point you had the option to you know make a decision going this sucks. I'm not yeah. interested in this. Dad, uh, you're just getting right to the heart of it. Totally. And that's a, that's a challenge for anybody that grows up in any kind of a, um, you know, a particular moral background, let's put it that way, is at what point does it become your own or doesn't it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I probably went through some, some heavy thinking uh, when I was at university thinking, is this, is this for me? Am I going to do this? And, and one of my sort of three things was, well, maybe I should be a pastor if I'm really th- serious about it, like my dad. And my dad's line was, don't be a pastor unless you can't help yourself. So oh, like, I love that like, line. Don't, don't do that unless you just totally are drawn to it and you can't think of anything else to do, uh, which I thought, thank you. Appreciate that advice. So now I'm free to go do something else. Uh, and I'm, I, I mean, it's still in that tradition that we're members of Northview church and I, I'm, you know, part of that community. Uh, but it gives you moral grounding for sure. Um, and I think everybody's got to just sort that out for themselves at some point. Otherwise you're just, you're just kind of running along on autopilot without having thought through it yourself. Great. So then you went into university, you said, okay, lawyer's the direction I'm going to get to. You got, you landed in Abbotsford about 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, now did you own your, did you start your own firm right from the beginning or did you? Not did, quite. Not quite. Not quite. How did it go? Yeah. Well, you have to article for a year. Yeah. This is like apprenticeship. So I did that. And my career in retrospect doesn't make any sense to anybody. So I tell my students at work, like, don't do what I did because it's a whole lot of pain for getting where you need to go. But that's the way it is in life sometimes. you got to try a bunch of stuff. So I thought I'd be a big corporate lawyer and uh, the market wasn't there for being hired. Um, I ended up buying a friend's, after I'd practiced for about a year, I bought a friend's little practice from him. If you've ever seen the movie Lincoln Lawyer, it was like that. It was a box of files, criminal defense files in the back of his, like in the trunk of his car. I think I bought like 60 files from him and uh didn't even have an office and i was like 
driving around, meeting people at courtrooms and stuff to have client meetings. And I just started from zero and I didn't know anything about being, about criminal law. And I had to learn that all and look foolish in front of the judges for a while. Uh, then I, I got a little bit more established and started doing more business law stuff, which I liked. Probably I like more to tell you the truth. I like the business world. Um, I ended up selling that practice to some guys. I went and did personal injury law for about seven years, which was great because anybody who wants to be a lawyer, no matter what they do, should go do a bunch of litigation for a while. Cause it gives you a sense of how, what happens if this, if this deal doesn't go right litigations at the end, how does that work? And you got a flavor for it. So I did personal injury for a, a bunch of years. And then I ended up joining the firm, which bought my practice way back when. So I kind of bought my clients back again. And some of them are still with me. Some of them that were right there from like year number two of my practice. I still have them. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Now litigation is a, I mean, I've always thought to myself that a litigation lawyer, that's almost a personality type. Oh yeah. And there are some lawyers who just love litigation. They love the fight. They yeah. love the, they like getting in the ring and duking it out mm -hmm. and, you know, outsmarting and all the rest of it. it but it is is it, is that just a story I'm telling myself or do you have to be at some level, a little bit confrontational just by personality type to do litigation? Um, sure. You need to. Okay. But everybody, anybody can be stuck in a job, whether they fit or not. So right. don't think that every litigation you lawyer, lawyer that you meet fits all, checks all those boxes. Got there's it. lots of people that do it in different styles and have different ways. I tend to be way more of a collaborative person than a confrontational per person. I, I'll, I'll make a personal sacrifice in my life not to have an out-and-out -out fight with somebody unless it's really, really important. So that's my makeup, which means I'm not the best litigator in the world because I don't like fighting for fighting's sake. Um, I'll tell my clients every way to avoid litigation if I can. It's the last resort, and it's expensive, and it's time drawn out. But in terms of personality types, uh, yeah, you need to, and you also need to, so you get something out of the fight, and some people are just wired that way, and good for them because we need those people. And... You, you, you don't mind picking fly shit out of the whole mountain. Like you got to yeah. go find all those little details that are going to destroy the other side. And you got to have a lot of patience for just dealing with that level of detail. If you're going to be good at it. Um, I deal with details in a different way. Um, I, and my view of details is very different. I'm like, I'll do details cause I have to, but I really would rather focus on the big picture. So I, I found after a while, I wasn't the best fit for being a litigator. So when you, when, when you go back 20 years ago and so you buy, you know, you buy a business out of the trunk of a car called, you know, 60 or 70 files, whatever that might've been. Yeah. And you're actually still discovering how to be a lawyer. You now have to take the education, the articling you have to put into practice. As you say, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to get good at this. And, and, and some of the learning is, 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 is hard work. It's, it's heavy lifting, but you know, you've also built a pretty successful practice. Now that takes some business savvy and that takes some thought around how are you going to build this business out? Now, were you just figuring that out as you went along or did you, did you get partners early on? Because I know you have a mm -hmm. couple of partners, I think. Yeah, we have, there's four of us all together. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a merger of two firms. Um, so about uh, 10 years ago, we merged two firms together. I can't think of any more complicated project to do than to merge yeah. two law firms. There's just so many little moving parts. Uh, so we walked through all that and which got us to the size of a, a big enough bulk in Abbotsford to be one of the top three firms, top two, depending on how you want to measure things. Um, 
we don't get much business training in law school. So a lot, most of it I've had to learn myself, um, how to read financial statements, how to understand what's going on in the, you know, how to talk to your accountants and that whole world. And I'm, I'm really in quite geekily interested in management of organizations. So I've spent a lot of time reading and thinking about stuff and how to implement good management practices. I was managing partner for quite a few years. I, I took a step back from that a couple of years ago, let somebody else do it. Uh, now I got to bite my tongue sometimes and, and not, not, not say what I think because right. you got to let somebody else do it. Uh, but I, I enjoy that part of it, but it's mostly, you know, it's mostly things we have to go learn ourselves. And just figure it out. Yeah. And I remember uh, talking to you back in that time. I want to say it was like uh, 10 years ago was about when I met you. I don't even know if you remember this, but you actually uh, helped me close the deal on the property, the first property we bought. I in, think I do. In Langley. Yeah. It was the first time we really met face to face in that. And I, and I do recall having conversation with you afterwards uh, because you're also, uh, you're a good friend of Don Campbell's that many of listeners know Don, of course. And the business that you were building at that time, I, I, I recall there was infrastructure that we were going through and, and really being challenged to do that. So on top mm-hmm. of over the years, you know, as you're learning to be a great lawyer and, and handling clients, you're also trying to grow a business. None of that is an easy, an easy task. And, and so where this is leading to is, is were there some key learnings around building your business back then that when you reflect on it, aside from a hard work, maybe reflection going, I wish I would have done that different. Any key learnings that you would say that if you were speaking with somebody about building their business, what did you take away from that yeah. that would you would share in terms of wisdom? Sure. Um, and there's, there's, there's a lawyer building his practice, which is different from building your business. They're, right. they're related, but they're not the same. So we'll talk about building the business, right? Uh, one of the things that I tell my clients so often is no matter how good the deal is, if you're not in it with good people, forget about it. Walk away. Walk away. Yeah. So one of my huge criteria was, do I want to be partners with these two guys along with the one partner I had already? Like, are these guys that we can get along with? And we, it's been 10 years and it's been a very good partnership. Not perfect. It never is, but partnerships are like, kind of like marriages. You got to close your eyes to some stuff and take a stand on other things. So who you're in business with, I think, is just so key. That's that's almost more important than the business itself. And then um, I learned a lot of lessons around how to hire people and and how to spot and find good people and how to uh, have the courage to get rid of good get rid of people that aren't fitting when they're not fitting in and do it quickly. Don't don't wait around. There's no point in waiting around. Um, and to do that, you need some clarity in the plan ahead of time to say, what, what exactly I'm looking for? How am I going to find these people? For example, it's a hard market to find uh, lawyers with one or two or three years call. You want those junior people, not partners, they're associates of your firm, but you want to you go find them from somewhere else. Uh, they're very hard to find because you got to spring them loose. And uh, so we thought, we found one very good person, but the rest of it, we've said, okay, we're going to start lower down and have students. So we have students that work for us we don't make any money on students. We do it because it educates them. It gets them to their licensing part, whether they stay with us or not, but it's building a whole next generation of associates. And so far it's worked really well. Um, so those are some really interesting lessons around people. And, uh, and then when it comes to processes and how you do your business, you know, a, a word to, to professionals out there, we tend to not spend enough time working on our business because we're so busy inside of it. And as a professional, you kind of have to be like in your job, you can be the CEO all day long and delegate as much as you want. In my job, I kind of still have to practice law. If I stop doing files, I'm not really a lawyer anymore in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a pressure in our world to keep 
up with your practice and you might not be doing management forever. So you want a practice to come back to. So you've got to, it's a hard balance. I'm doing, I'm doing legal work and I'm doing files. And if I'm doing management, I'm also taking a piece of my time to do that. And honestly, most lawyers will tend to not spend enough time because they're not very good at it or they don't see the value of it in management. You know, all of what you've just gone through is actually just really sound advice for any business, you know, and, and because we're got a background or, you know, a lot of listeners are real estate investors in this particular case, and you're doing a co-venture or you're doing a joint venture, the same thing, but different terminology, you know, this many years in with rain and working with probably thousands of real estate investors, technically the stories that I hear around joint ventures mm -hmm. gone South are often is that they were going after the transaction. They were, it was about the deal without the realization that this is a partnership mm -hmm. and we have a tendency as real estate investors to maybe minimize that or park it over there and just pretend not to know that it exists, but it is a partnership. And, oh, yeah. and I mean, you've probably dealt with it. Like, I, I mean, I, I deal with the stories of it. I mean, mm -hmm. you're in the throes of it. It, do you do you bump up against that a lot in these oh, real so estate often. deals? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to riff on this for a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of passionate about this. Okay, hang so, on. Hang on one second, though. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so real estate investors and the joint ventures that they get into. So I, I, I set them up for people. Uh, I also deal with a lot of them after they've been set up and there's problems. Um, so I'm going to kind of run through a mental checklist here. Uh, I'm going to agree with you and start with uh, who you're in it with is the first thing to think about the deal is in a way the second because you can have an okay deal and great people and you'll probably be fine but if you got a great deal and lousy people you won't be fine so you got to be in it with good people because it isn't just buying royal bank stocks from royal bank you're business partners with somebody and you're going to have a whole bunch of decisions to make you're going to need to trust each other um, you're going to need to come up with cash maybe from time to time so the character of the people that you're with and the financial strength of them and their basic honesty, integrity, you've got to figure that out and you need to know them well enough to, to, to be able to make that judgment call and be confident about it. So that's number one. And, and don't ever come to a lawyer and say, I don't qu quite trust that person. Can you write me a really good agreement because I don't quite trust them? Make it like, you know, airtight. Well, if you're buying, if you're doing a one-time buy from them, okay. But if you're in business with them long-term, don't even go there would be my, would, would be my, would be a thought. Cause I can't write you a good enough agreement that's gonna get you out of every problem that you have with a person that you're in a continual business relationship with. So that's number one. Two, obviously the deal needs to make sense. And often with, with earlier first time investors, if I can just say this, one of the th patterns I see that, that, that harms them is they're trying to do too complicated of a deal to begin with. Just get something simple under your belt to begin with. Don't try to do a fancy rent to own and you're trying to figure out what to do at the same time that you're trying to figure out which deal to do, right? Um, so I would say to people, keep it simple, get a few easies under your belt. They're not going to be out of the parks. They're just going to be a single. And, and they're, they're just, you're developing a sense of confidence and a sense of understanding of what this is all about. That's how people I think should, should, should begin on this. And the complicated stuff will come. You'll get lots of opportunities. One of my rules of thumb is if, if you can't explain it to me, then it's probably too complicated for you, right? Like if I've got mm -hmm. to figure out all the complication for you, then maybe you shouldn't be doing this one, right? That's such a great filter, Mark, because given your background as a lawyer, but your background is real estate, both as an investor, but as a lawyer that are is orchestrating deals. And 
And I know some pretty sophisticated deals given your background and and who comes in your office. And that's everything from developers to uh, joint venture kind of folks, guys that have been around mm-hmm. a long time, multifamily and commercial. Gosh, I mean, yeah. and some deals with that are really cool. And one of the reasons the deals are cool is because they got lots of hair all over them, as they say, and, and they want to clean them up. So yeah. a filter is explain it to me, tell me. And if I can understand it, then I can maybe uh, yeah. say that this is cool. How do we how do we balance with you know somebody listening to this who is hearing what we're saying and in the meantime has a check for a couple hundred grand from a joint venture partner sitting there just waiting for a home waiting for a home yeah. and and they're yeah. going gosh you look interesting and I got this two hundred thousand dollars how does how do you know how do you how do you say well, is, to somebody, walk away if that sure. partner gives you the heebie-jeebies? Well, what does Warren Buffett say? His, his number one problem isn't lack of cash. It's lack of good deals to go after. And he'll, 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 I read his report, his annual report every year. I think it's just awesome reading yeah, yeah. from Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm such Woo-hoo. a, are we geeks? I don't know. <laughs> I really like it, actually. I, I just learned from him in his annual reports. And he, his number one frustration is, I know you think I'm not doing anything because I'm sitting around here not buying anything. And I got all this cash sitting around. He says, well, I'm not going to make a bad deal just because I got cash sitting around. So uh, if you want, okay, great. Somebody wants to give you all this money and they're waiting to go and they're waiting for you to find something. I would still say, be really disciplined because if you take that money and you put it into something that's just okay to bad, well, you're going to be living with that result and you're going to have to report to that client or that partner of yours. And uh, that might be the last deal you do with them. And you might ruin your own self-confidence because you go, oh, what did I do this for? This is terrible. I'm not any good at this. So, you know, we need to be patient uh, for a deal that actually makes sense. And when you're when you're more sophisticated and you've got bigger dollars and you've been doing some, some things for a while, then the complicated deal that I need to help you figure out, that's okay because you and I know where the where the pieces are that legal has to figure out. And I'll I, I do some work there that's actually structuring the deal and I I structure huge deals for big developers and multiple investors and stuff. And, and I spend a lot of time structuring those, but that's very, this is way down the road from the person who's starting out, who, again, I'll encourage to just buy something simple that makes sense uh, that you, Chris Hadfield wrote his book on being an astronaut, right? And one of his chapters in his book is, and he's this experienced astronaut who goes up to the space station for the first time. And he says, be a zero. What's be a zero? What does that mean? He, with all of his experience over the years, still, when he shows up there, he's the new guy on the station. He says, I just don't want to cause anybody a problem. I know I got lots of talent, but I don't know what I'm doing up here yet. So I just want to be a zero. I just want to be neutral. And I don't want to get in the way of anybody until I know what I'm doing. And I thought, well, that's a great measure of ego versus humility. And step back until you know, you're pretty sure you know what you're doing, right? I thought that was a good example. And and the choice and and I think it's important that we it's okay that we spend a little bit of time on this because there's there's value in all these lessons that you're sharing and and choosing the right joint venture partner, uh, making sure that the deal's right, being patient around that uh, ego versus humility. Gosh, that's always a, a, a topic for me. I see that as being a topic of conversation for many real estate investors. Would you agree though that? Sometimes when we don't, when we're choosing the partner, and I won't use my, I won't say we. Often I see because I know how I have looked at. It. I don't even take joint venture partners on anymore. To mm-hmm. be quite honest with you, I, mm-hmm. if I am, I'm the money partner, and I'm the that side of the equation, and I'm very selective in that regard. But having said all of that, when you're first starting out, you got a couple hundred grand, and you're you know like right there in front of you, the person is maybe questionable. The second part is. 
how important is it to understand where that person's $200,000 is coming from? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, knowing the person in the background and where that money's coming from and whether it's from growing marijuana, which will soon be legal, but wasn't, you know, whether it, is that your question? Is like, Well, that's all the, part of the it. The cleanliness sure. of the money the, or the, the security of it? Has it been borrowed? Is it cash? But all of it, yeah. right? But, you know, you, you think about it, the cleanliness of the money. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially in, a, in an environment called British Columbia, yeah. where in, in the past, you've got the whole uh, marijuana thing going on. But also, I see time and time again is the expectation of somebody borrowing 200000 off their HELOC. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's always a little bit of a flag. Be careful. You know, is that bread money? Is it, oh, yeah. you know, where's that capital? Because those are the things that come back to haunt real estate investors, sure. the, the working partner. Yeah. And look, like a lot of our initial investors and partners will be people we know. They're not going to be strangers to us. They're, they might be friends and family. And so you've got that relationship. And I often, if I'm doing, I, I'm careful about doing business with friends and family. But if I do, I have a long conversation with them and say, you know, I'm a lawyer but I'm not your lawyer on this deal. So I, I'm, I'm just a guy who's doing business with you and I've got, that's some professional ethics I've got to keep on the right side of. Uh, but I also tell them the money is not as important as me having a relationship. I don't ever want to lose our friendship or our relationship because of a money issue. So it hasn't happened yet, but theoretically I'm saying I will walk away from money if, if it's going to, if the alternative is to destroy a relationship that I really value. So, you know, think that through ahead of time with the people that you're investing in. And you want a conversation if you're putting the thing together about, and what happens, what will you do if this doesn't go well? Like, what does not go well work, look like for us? You're probably not going to lose entirely your investment because what piece of investment in real estate goes down to zero? Like, not very likely, but you could lose 20% if we sold at the bottom or 30, you take your pick, 50% in a really terrible market if you tanked out at the bottom, right? So discuss ways that it won't go well because we can all see ways that will go well. But what if it doesn't? Discuss the chances, if you can figure it out, of what are our chances of a, of a success? What are our chances of just okay? What are the chances of a disaster? Like oil tanking in Alberta causes lots of problems for lots of those investments. There's an example, right? And then, again, like sometimes you're, you're going to be somebody else's best friend to say, uh, okay, you make $80,000 a year doing your job. Um, over the years, you've built up all this equity in your house, and now you're going to stroke a check on your, on your line of credit for an investment that might have a 10-year horizon on it. Maybe you don't want to do that because even though I know you want to, like you're not going to be very happy with a line of credit hanging out for 10 years waiting for something to happen to get paid back. And you've got those interest payments on it all the time. So not everybody should be doing that. Not everybody can afford the, the loss and the downside if it happens. We can all afford the upside, but what happens on the downside? When you, when you structure a deal and you have somebody else putting in all the money, I really do think they need to be told that if the deal goes underwater, it's your money that you've loaned to the venture that's not coming back, as opposed to the person who structured it and didn't put any money into it at all. People don't think that through. It's like, well, I'm in business with that guy, but I put in all the money and it's actually my loan that's at risk if this thing doesn't go up in value, if it goes down. People need to understand that part of it. So that's just, you know, kind of looking after relationships and, and looking after people. And I do have a rule of thumb in my own life. Um, I got a house. I got lots of equity in my house. I will use a line of credit on my house. I'll stroke big checks on that. If I've got a horizon that's, let's say, less than about three years for it to come back to me. So I won't long-term use that equity to go buy something. I want to do that with cash. But if it's a development deal, and I've been in some of those, and I know the development is going to be done in two or three years' time, 
then I, I don't mind using my line of credit for that. In other words, I've got a near-term plan to pay it back. So you're, and you're conservative that way. And that's yeah, great. So yeah. this was a, this was a, I think in a, I, I, I had no problem going into this conversation. I think it's really important, but I want to, I want to bring it back to you a little mm-hmm. bit because you built your business, you built your practice and I know we'll go off on another real estate tangent and that's cool. Tell me, when did you meet Brenda and how important was the relationship that you and Brenda had in building your business? I mean, mm-hmm. of course, Brenda was you have a family together and how, tell me a little bit about your uh, background. Yeah. Um, we, the story takes too long to tell in all this detail, but we, we kept bumping into each other's names, with different people that we knew and we were kind of in the same circles, but we never quite met. And I, oh, this is Brenda. She sounds like pretty good. I hope I can meet her sometime. And it, even at one point I had a roommate in university who had this picture sitting on his, his dresser. And I'm like, Oh, who's that? That's kind of cute. Oh, that's Brenda froze. I'm like, Brenda Froze again? And you used to date her? And how weird is this world? And when am I ever going to bump into this person? So uh, uh, given our background and earlier in the conversation, surprise, surprise, it was a church that I, that we bumped into each other Yeah, because uh, we were both attending the same church at that time. And she was dating somebody else. But uh, I, I asked her out anyways, and she said no. And then I asked her out again, and she said no again. I, I guess I got the message. I really, I guess she really doesn't want to go out with me. And then later she, she broke up with that guy and sent a few signals my way that she was ready to be asked. So asked her out and it, it went real fast from there. We're just, uh, we, we, yeah. And so it's been 23 years, um, this August the 6th. So we're coming up to 25 soon. Um, how, and what role has she sort of been in, in my, my career and my business? She's a big cheerleader. So she encourages me and, and, and tells me how brilliant I am and, probably needs to tell me once in a while when I'm not so brilliant. <laughs> That's uh, helpful. She does that too. Yeah, of yeah. course. And I've learned actually my worst investment was one that she was kind of uh, on. And so before I do anything major, I usually talk it all over with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't bring the same sort of numbers crunching that I bring to it, but she brings a lot of just basic wisdom. And do we want to do this? And you know what we are like, I have the luxury of being conservative with my, business and my investing because I've got a, 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 a salary to fall back on as a lawyer. So I don't need to go kill it this year in order to have bread on my table, right? So my model is different from some people. It's like, I do my job and I'm happy to do my job and I get lots of satisfaction there and the extra cash that I have, I can use to do investing. So it's a pretty incremental conservative approach to, to investing. But if you can't sleep at night, that's not good. So it, it lets me sleep at night. I like it that way. And Brenda, um, she's also an interior designer um, in her in her work life. So she gets involved in some of the things we do and and make sure make sure it looks right and it's designed right if we're if we're building or renovating something. You know, time and time again, as I'm interviewing people that have achieved a, a great life and and a great result, and it's not always you know it's seldom about the money. I mean, the money is a result of or what comes out of being focused on a great life and time and time again, we see about relationship and the importance and significance of relationship. And, you know, Stephanie and I have been married 22 years together, 25 years. And the relationship that we have is really at the core of everything we do. And it comes first. And sometimes for whatever reason, primarily me, by the way, you know, I'll get off track on that and where, you know, business comes before relationship or I 
get in, in and she is, she truly is, you know, my center and she just goes, Oh, get back here, mm-hmm. you know, bring it back. And so with you and Brenda and the people that, you know, it, it, the reason I, I, I dig into this a little bit is because I think it's important for people who want to achieve that level of lifestyle and, and a great life. It's not just about money. It is really about relationship. Do you and Brenda have a, a, a real, I'll call it a practice, but do you have a, a real thoughtful kind of intentional way of being in your relationship? Uh about money or just like our relationship? All general? of it. Okay. Money, because money's business, really, relationship. Yeah, and it, you know, it's funny, like money, we, we no, none of us want to say we're completely driven by money and we shouldn't be. And yet it's such a central part of so much of what we do. It's mm-hmm. the it's the universal solvent. It solves all kinds of problems that are money problems, right? So, well, being people of faith, we have that commonality in our morals and our principles and we, we don't have to, you know, spend a lot of time arguing about whether we should be truthful or not mm-hmm. in our lives, for example, was basic stuff, right? Um, how we raise our kids, we don't have to spend a lot of time on the morals of what do we teach our kids. We're, we're on the same page there. I deliberately have spent a lot of time uh, with my kids, tried to be very involved in their lives, read, one of my favorite things was reading to them every night when they were little. So trying to build, trying to pour that time into family, and really in the early days it was practice and family and not a lot of the time for other things. I, I wasn't out in the community putting tons of time in and so on. And then with Brenda now, you know, we're, we're, it's great because we're, we're talking about what's the next stage of our life and our kids are, are getting older and they're, they're moving out of the house. I got one daughter who's, who's off in Montreal studying and my son has just graduated high school. So now we have these evenings where we look at each other and go, now, what do we do? Like, have we run out of things to talk about? <laughs> she says to me, maybe you want to, maybe you, maybe we just want to go watch movies because we run out of things to talk about and then, then we'll find something else. But it is a new stage of life and you're the same, like you're Still. coming up to 25 too, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not, and there's a time now for things to get better and deeper and different. And uh, that that's pretty exciting for me, but it's a new challenge that we got to figure out. And so uh, it's something that we're you know, quite, quite kind of starting in on. You can tell me because you're a couple years ahead, maybe. <laughs> Well, you know, we're, uh, you know, Stephanie and I, of course, are enjoying being grandparents right now. And so that's a, it, it yeah. actually adds a different layer of conversation and focus. And, oh, totally. you know, you want to put time and energy into supporting, I want to put time and energy into supporting our daughter and, and, and son-in-law, of course, and the grandchildren and, and being guides. They, they live in Alberta. We're spending most of our time in British Columbia, although we're, we're fortunate to get back to Alberta a lot, but that's really part of our focus. I don't ever see us not being in business. We, we, we have conversations about that all the time is, is, is our, we, we check in quite often at this point in our life and, and cause we are going and we're asking ourselves, is this what we want to continue to do? Is this what's lighting us up? And the answer remains yes. And although sometimes it feels like hard work or maybe because it is, it's also part of our makeup. Mm-hmm. We, we enjoy doing it. And as long as we're being a contribution and a value, then we're all in. And, and I think we do that kind of check-in on a regular basis. And then who are we being in our relationship? Uh, you know, you know, we, we don't, we have a pretty tight line when we, we don't, we don't, we have pretty low tolerances in, in how either one of us might be showing up. And so it just becomes who you are, you know, yeah. it really, really is a cool place well, to be in that regard. When, when you've been together for, for that long, yeah. you, you know, where all the, all the, all the, the, <laughs> totally. the, the, the sensitive points are yeah. and the, the typical stuff. And you I know have, where that button is. You got to have a lot of grace, <laughs> yes. right? Like be gracious to the things that, that, totally. aren't, that aren't perfect. 
uh, and be willing to accept that that things aren't always going to be the way you want them to be. But on the other hand, like nobody knows me as well as Brenda does. Sure. And uh, you know, sometimes I just say like, we got to talk this thing over, and I'll go on and on and on and on. And she goes, Yeah, I know, I've heard that. Over. Yeah, I just got to tell you all over again. And we think out loud to each other, right? Yeah. And uh, I think you know, you get solid enough, hopefully, in your relationships that you can call each other out on the tough stuff and go have that conversation. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I, I'm putting a bomb on the table. It's all going to blow up. It means I care about this so much that I, I'm going to have this hard conversation now and it might not be comfortable, but we need to do it if we want to be solid. And don't you see so many of your friends of your age, um, you know, in trouble in their relationships, right? And how do you, like, in I'm in my fifties, um, how do you get through your fifties and, and, still be okay with your marriage and your relationships and your kids and everything else. And, and it takes a lot of deliberate thought, I think, and asking people who've been there ahead of you. Yeah. And it's, you know, the reason I see these as such important conversations is again, consistently the people that I would aspire to be like, or that inspire me to continue to up my game. Or when I look at success, you know, I don't look at success as a thing called financial. It's just one component mm -hmm. of a life. And Stephanie and I have often joked is that, you know, if we were flat broken on the street, as long as we were hanging out together, we'd be okay. And that really is the case for us. I don't know if it's that way for everybody. And the reason I think it's an important conversation in, is, is bringing, you know, if you're listening to this and, and you're in a relationship that you're questioning, you need to really look at that. You need to slow down long enough to look at the relationship. It doesn't mean get rid of it. It's like, what are you doing or not doing? What, what was your role in creating a great relationship? And a, an interesting exercise I'll share with you, Mark, is, is that uh, a coach, this was a few years ago, said to me in a conversation that we were having about how we were being in a relationship. He goes, all I want you to do is focus on Stephanie. Everything that you do, every decision that you make, I want you to have Stephanie in the back of your mind. He goes, if you get up to get yourself a drink of water, he said, I want you to look over at Stephanie and go, would you like a, wow. would you like a glass of water? That's a good one. Yeah. And, and so everything I did, I did with the intention and with a background of Stephanie and what does it mean to her and how can I include her or what should I be asking her? And it was profound. Mm -hmm. Now, do I... Do I still do that? I think I do it at a, at a kind of a subconscious level and, and I'm, I'm far from great at it, but I can get grounded back in it because I've done that exercise. And so if I feel at any point where I'm getting bitchy around Stephanie or, or any time I start in my brain blaming her or feeling an imbalance, I dig into it and I go right back to that exercise. Mm -hmm is how can I be the most supportive husband of Stephanie? It changes and, and, everything. And doesn't that little evil voice back in our head go, why should I have to work so hard at this? <laughs> totally. How come I'm the one that has to do all this? <laughs> totally, right? totally. And like that's is human nature. Yeah. And, and a similar piece of advice somebody somebody said that I thought was just awesome is, is uh, maybe you should look at that partner or that business partner or your wife or whatever your spouse and, and, and look at it with the positive assumption, which is, what if this person is just doing the best they can? Mm. And, and if you trust somebody and you have respect for them, how about start there and say, you know what, what's going on here is, is bugging me, but maybe I just need to think that you're doing the best you can and you're not trying to sabotage this. And goodness, we all come up short in so many areas of our life every day that uh, maybe that's just a, a piece of graciousness that we need to give to each other a lot. Unless somebody, unless somebody consistently proves that wrong. Yes. Like they're out to get you. Yeah. Right. 
And that's a whole, you know. And well, hopefully you're not in a relationship like that. No, no. I mean, and and we do have, you know, I mean, then that's a different conversation. But, you know, getting back to, you you mentioned something about money. And I I wanted to to spend a bit of time there because you asked about, you know, do we have a deliberate philosophy about money? If there's one thing that I I really feel strongly about, and I, I, I say it quite out loud quite often, and people often don't believe me. I deal with people that have very little money and I deal with people that have tons of money, like, like multiples of what I have. Right. And they're not, they might be 10 times more wealthy than I am. And they are not 10 times happier. Mm. They might be 1.1 times happier, but at some point, not even that they're just as happy as unhappy as I am. Why? Because Brenda doesn't quite believe me sometimes when I say this, but money only solves money problems. And at the same time, it creates a whole bunch of other issues in your life. Like we walked your property and you've got five acres here and we walked the back four, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I call it the back 40, back by 40. the way. Yeah. Okay. That, that sounds better. The back 40. <laughs> back 40. It, it felt that big. Uh, and what I'm, we were having a conversation about how much effort does it take to look after that, right? Mm-hmm. So I often tell, we get in this discussion with clients and, I, and we talk about this. It's like having all this money in your life, you, client, it's like having a great big garden to look after and it's marvelous and it looks good and it feeds you and you got more than enough and you can give people stuff in your, but you've got to look after it. And if, if people care about that part of their life, they spend a lot of energy looking after their money and worrying about it and wondering how their kids are going to be with the money and whether that person that's dating my daughter is really just after the money and whether that, you know, all, and, and how am I going to make sure that it's fair with my kids? And how am I going to make sure my spouse doesn't marry I mean, if I die early and my spouse marries somebody else and they want to spend all the money. So it's not all upside. So I, I think, I mean, I still struggle with, with being consistent with this, but I think my own philosophy about money is I'm not out to be the wealthiest guy. Um, all I need is enough and we will have different, different definitions of enough, but my investing is really just to look after my retirement and I don't need a gajillion dollars left over when I kick over in order to, to do what with, to give to my kids. So I'm, 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 I'm content to, to have enough money that my needs are looked after and I don't have to come to anybody else in my retirement and my kids will have enough money for me to invest in them really now when they're doing their education. I think that's really important. And for me to leave them a great big pile of money 40 years from now, 30 years from now, it's not really my goal. I mean, it might happen, but it's not what I'm really after. Well, that's an interesting uh, point that you're making, Mark. And and because I'm talking to real estate investors all the time, as you are, and I mean, certainly as legal counsel for a lot of business owners and real estate investors, you see large portfolios, you see a lot of wealth and, you know, people talk about legacy and that's cool. You know, legacy, what have I got for my kids and what do I want to build for my kids? And I have my own philosophy around that, you know, by the way, yeah. uh, you know, if I happen to have some money left over and, and I, I've got real estate and, and my daughter takes it over, that's awesome. Um, but I wouldn't be who I am. And I know that you wouldn't be who you are in terms of character and confidence and, and just your life overall if you had millions of dollars sitting there and you were a trust funder and, or you walked into a whole bunch of money. I I think that, you know, my, my fundamental philosophy around all of it is that, yeah, I want to leave a legacy, but I'm not driven by it. It's not, I don't wake up and go, Oh you know, I got I got to make this decision or I got to buy this other piece of real estate or my kids will suffer. Hmm. 
guess what? There is some value in suffering and whatever their version of suffering is. Yeah. And so I think it's important to to relate to that. And I think you're learning that as a lawyer. You're seeing it firsthand often, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we see families and there's like a few cliches that are that really have truth in them that pop to mind. Uh, one is, uh, you know, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. I mean, how often do we see that? I see that pattern where generation one worked really hard and built it. Generation two did a pretty good job of managing it, but didn't have a big vision and work ethic. And generation three, which by the way, it's a pyramid. And at the bottom, you get all these people in generation three, because you, you yeah. know, all these, all these people that are part of your family now, they're just trust funders and they spend it. And totally. so what's your legacy at the end of all that? Yeah. And I'm not poo-pooing people that, nope. that are driven by, because it's a whole skill of building a whole thing and, and having that drive and f- finding value. And I recognize those people, they have a skill, and if they do good things with their money, I'm not arguing with them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a, I'm just pointing out that there's a, there's a, there's a pernicious danger about kids and too much money. You've got to work really extra hard to not have those kids poisoned by having that money. And I've seen some families do it well, and I've seen other families not do it well. Yeah, and I think that's all it is, is a perspective. To your point, it's not about making, leaving legacy wrong. It's just the understanding of actually what you're creating. And, and some people have a, I guess, a, an illusion of what it really is. And because you're in, it, in the trenches to a far greater degree than I am, and although I have certainly a, a lot of exposure to it over the years, you're in it on a day-to-day basis, watching people manage mm-hmm. that wealth and what they bump up against. As business owners, and, and if you're doing any kind of research, you know that third generation is always the crash generation when it comes to wealth, or often the crash generation. More often than not. More often than not. It's the exceptional family that manages to not have that happen. So you've built a business, you great marriage relationship, wonderful children, and they're doing some phenomenal things. Uh, You know, I get a little bit of the Brenda talking about the children and what they're, what they're oh, yeah. doing. And that, that's, that's, that's cool. I, one, I, one, one, of her, one of her good topics. <laughs> one, yeah. Yeah, one of her favorite topics. Yeah. It's awesome. And you should be proud of all your kids as we all are. Tell me a little bit about in your own day to day, how do you look after yourself? I mean, you're mid fifties, you're slim and trim, and I know that you've started biking, but what other kind of practice do you have that looks after yourself? How do mm-hmm. you, how do you look after yourself? I mean, you have conversations with Brenda, which is you know, nurturing the relationship. What do you do to look after yourself physically, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of it? Yeah. Because it's all of those things. Oh, that's a good one. And I think uh, when you're not so busy in the trenches of life, you you realize that you need a little bit more maintenance in your life because I wrote out a whole bunch of things. And the last one was I need, I want to get in much better shape than I'm in because I want to be able to keep doing all this stuff. So I think as you get a little bit older, your physicality is more of a, to me, anyways, it's more of a, I need to be healthy because I want to be able to continue to do stuff. I want to be around with my kids. I want to be able to go hiking with my, you know, friends, whatever. Uh, and it's not so much about looking good on the beach anymore. Uh, those days maybe are are kind of waning. Although you're still looking good on the beach. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, that's me on I'm the just, beach. You already. should be answering this question. Yeah, yeah, hanging out at the pool. Uh, so what I find in my own personality, I need some, I need some of my own time. Um, and lately I've, I've just invented this little kind of a monitoring system where I've got a calendar and I... I, 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 I go over the day and I just use a highlighter and I, I'm just making notes over a few months to get the pattern, which is red is what, it, what, what fed my soul? What do I, what, what made, what gave me energy? And it's interesting looking back and you get in these patterns of things that, that sort of give you energy. So I take a bit of, bit of time in the morning, just to have my a coffee, quiet, read what I want to read. I'm not doing work. I try to stay off email. I'm just reading interesting things that are interesting to me. 
or maybe I'm working on some project or something that's my time. And then my day is very structured because I have to be at the office most days, eh, eight o'clock, 8.30 or something and, and work the day. We're very flexible as partners, but that's my day more or less. When I'm at the office, I need to be spending most of my day on billable client work, not fiddling around with other stuff. Uh, we're accountable to that as lawyers and, and that's just the discipline that we have to have. I've, in the last few years, tried to take a lot more time to, to just enjoy friendships and reach out to people and spend time and have a coffee or have a lunch and, and just take that time with my friends. Been doing more trail running and recently bought a bike. So trying to, to get more physical because I can, I can easily just sit in the office all day long and be wiped out at the end and go home and, 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 and that's not good for me. So, so I can learn a few things from people that are more into fitness, such as you, about how do you find that discipline? And I think a, a lot of it is about finding the joy in it. Like you talked about the joy of working in your backyard, your, your back 40 and the physicality of that, right? So I, I think I'm still looking for paying attention to things that I would color in red as being enjoyable that are physical to do and, uh, and finding those things. And um, we've always, as a family, when the kids were around, we've always tried to have dinner together every night. And so my kids now aren't around as much, but Brent and I will, will almost always have dinner together and a conversation. And that's just, you know, connecting at the end of the day and talking about what happened, spending that time and trying not to, okay, a couple more things, uh, trying not to fill, my, fill up my whole life with work. Um, we can usually work a lot more efficiently if we want to. And the, the, the bad habit we get into is letting work spread all over ourselves like bad peanut butter. It's just all over the place, right? So just try to constrict it to when I'm working, I'm really working. And when I'm not, I'm really not. I'm really unplugged from it. And then vacationing is another thing where we try to choose vacations of places that we're, we're truly interested in seeing. And I need a mix of go, go, go. And sometimes some of the other time I'm just sitting, not doing very much. And the, when you're kind of a driven person, it's a bit of a challenge to say, I can be okay just sitting here. I don't need to be running off all the time. And just because when you, when you come back, you don't want to be exhausted from your vacation. So we like to go to, uh, we're going to Paris this fall and we, we've been spending a lot of time in, in different European cities. Just love it. Got to be careful not to run myself down when I'm doing that. You know, you, uh, you said a lot of things that kind of hit buttons for me in the conversation. Uh, one of the things, and I'd never looked at it this way, but you, you used it and you used the word maintenance in terms of our bodies. And it's so that's such a, an interesting way to, or you, an interesting word to use. I've actually never used it, but it's like, you know, it's our bodies need to be maintained they do. and, and part of the maintenance is, is, is around exercise, is around eating right, is around looking after our mental and emotional, spiritual health because, and, and that is maintenance because we can get into the trenches of working and, and the way our brain is firing and the trash, you know, the stress that we may feel or take on or the pressure way we may be feeling. It's like any piece of equipment, you know, if you use it, you got to sometimes quit using it. Take time to maintain it. If that looks like a vacation, that may look like a vacation. That's great. But it also looks like being intentional mm. around it, uh, which you're, you're interesting that you are using a calendar to kind of monitor that, which is kind of like you. That's how I, you know, that's how I, I, well, I, I you're a little nerdy that way. And, and yeah. that's kind of cool part yeah, of what I can, Mark. I can live down on the code sometimes. About, <laughs> like, I want to track this. Give me some numbers. Yeah. Uh, this is a new experiment. It's only like I'm doing it over a few months because yeah. I need to go. I need, to, I need to be more aware of really like blue is things that suck energy out of me. Yeah. And how do I get less blue in my life right. and more green or, or, or red in my life, which is passion stuff. And, 
I, I think it's a universal challenge because we are so often wired about obligation. I should do this. I should do that. I should do that. Uh, and as professionals, I, I take calls and I take emails all day long and I, I need to always be, I, I'm at the point where I can filter that a bit more about who do I want to work for? Who don't I want to work for? And I still like helping people a lot. And I had some people in the other day and we talked a long time about a, a buying a piece of a building that they were thinking of doing and the pros and cons of that. And I'm like, oh, this is my sandbox. I, I, I don't mind this at all. This is fun. Let's go at it. Let's have, let's have a long conversation on this. So, so that gives me joy. And um, I've discovered that a certain, high, a certain level of community work really gives me joy. So like Chamber of Commerce present, that's all volunteer. I'm also on the Abbotsford Police Board. Uh, and I volunteer my time for that. So between those two, that that's a lot of time, maybe a little too much. But I will probably always have that piece in my life because that's just a piece of me. I like somehow giving back to the community and being involved in that way. Um, and serving on boards at this point seems to be kind of a couple of things that I'm doing. What have you learned? You know, president of Chamber of Commerce, what have you, what have you learned being in because that comes with some public profile, yeah. I, I believe, and uh, you see me in the paper every yeah. uh, every few weeks. Right, yeah, I get my column. Gosh, we buy our, we buy our way into the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how's that experience been for you? What have you learned along the way, uh, being of service in in that way to the community? What What do you like about it? What do you see as the pros or cons? Or do you see in in the world of community, can you be a contribution and have an impact the way you thought you could? Mm. You know, I, the reason I say this is because, uh, uh, and it, it's weirdly unrelated, related in my brain, which is, I remember a, a good friend of mine who's a police officer, he went into gangs and, you know, he was being a, an undercover guy on gangs. And and at the time it was a a, a, a huge Asian problem, but he, it, Asian gangs. And, and so he actually learned to speak the language, mm-hmm. it, like he really went into it. And I'd see him every so often. And he's all fired up about it. And a couple of years later, he comes in and, and I'm going, what are you doing? And he, what are you doing these days? Are you still, you know, busting the bad guys? And he goes, yeah, but I'm not on the gang squad mm-hmm. anymore. And I go, why not? He goes, yeah. He says, I just didn't I feel like I, was, I, I didn't feel like I was making a difference. Ah, wasn't making a difference. Yeah. Okay. He, he said, I couldn't like, he said, I just didn't feel like I was making a difference anymore. Yeah. And so he had to let it go. Now, I know that's weird, but in a, in a kind of a, it relates in my brain. I make the link in my brain to doing the kind of level of community service that you are with the chamber because you're really trying to make a difference in a community. Yeah. And do you think you are? Do you feel like you are? Uh, yes. Um, so I like, I call that public service. I'm not, an, I'm not elected, obviously. It's just a, it's a group that I have volunteered for and, and been on the board and been in that position, but it, it's public service nonetheless. And if people ask me, why do I do it? I, my first thing I say is public service as opposed to, let's say, oh, I'm doing this to build my business and, and find clients. Sure. Like, yeah. that happens, but my my main reason is public service uh, and do and, and how do I measure that and am I making a difference? So it's a good question because um, you can do it for lots of wrong reasons. Also for ego. I just want to be that important person and I want to show up at all the stuff and I want to, you know, make the speeches. And, and I, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, there, there's a, a bit of that there, sure. but it's not... It's not the prime motivation, really. I, I'm, I'm a kind of a leave it better than I found it person. I'm really wired that way. So with Chamber of Commerce, we got 700 members in the business community here in Abbotsford. So it's a sizable organization. My, if I could boil my, my goal down very simply, it's just like leave it better than it than I found it. And so for me, that's been a lot of it's been about recruiting really good board members that will come after me and be in more senior positions after me. Um, we are now looking for an executive director, so we got to find a good person, a really good person, 
to be our executive director. So that's how I see public service there. Um, and then chamber does certain things like advocate on behalf of businesses and, and provide community events. But you know what, all that happens anyways, it's sort of part of the machinery. So when you're doing this public service, you need, you're joining something that exists already probably. So you're saying, okay, that machine's running already. What am I bringing to it that's worthwhile? And maybe it's nothing and you shouldn't be there. Like maybe, and, you know, and that's sometimes an answer, right? So find something that you think is going to make a difference with what you're bringing to it. And I've got some particular interest and skills in boards and strategic thinking and how they work. And I'm really interested in that. I'm probably going to go do some more study in that area and, and some more practice. But I'm hoping I can bring that value as opposed to, let's say, I'm the numbers guy and I'll tell you all about the finances and I'll slice and dice the numbers. I'm not really that guy. I'm more about strategy and what's our strategic plan and are we challenging ourselves about that? And in the, in the community, I, one lesson I've learned, I guess, with, these, with, these, with this community invo involvement is you maybe have less influence than you think you do. Like, it's hard to move the needle in a public organization when you're a volunteer board member. Um, if you're the CEO of Rain, you can move the needle tomorrow if you want to, and not with a magic wand, like you've still got a ship that has to turn, sure, but you yeah. can turn it, right? Yeah. In the public world, it's a lot less than you'd think. And even talking to, let's say, elected official, like like our, our, our city councilors that are sit on city council, they probably have less influence than we think they do because there's a whole city bureaucracy that's, that's running that ship and they got to get in there and move that ship if they want to. It's hard. It's hard in the public sector to actually make a significant difference. You know, it's interesting for me that as I hear you talk about that, where I can't step up into that public service yeah, really. is I can't, is I would lose my shit. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm too entrepreneurial. I'm too, let's move this forward. I don't have the patience for bureaucracy. Like many don't get me on the topic of bureaucracy of government, for example, and, and all those things. I, I just, and so I, I really do appreciate and, and respect and honor guys like you or people like you who can actually are willing to step up and be patient and, and work with it and, and whatever difference you can make, be okay with making that difference. I, I'm just not wired that way. And it really is good to have that self-awareness because if you went and did that because you felt obligated to, oh, I should do that, mm -hmm. you might be sitting in all those meetings just being frustrated and yeah. you're unhappy and you're not using the skills. So, so isn't, isn't that what we need to do is to figure out what we're good at and, and stop compensating for the stuff that we're not good at and just pour gas on your, on your strengths, as they say, let's go with your strengths. If you're, if you know, when, when you've got that figured out. The, are you an early riser? Yeah. Yeah. Are you a, I'm a 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. latest kind of guy. Are you in uh, that range? About six. About six. Yep. And so your mornings are yourself. Do you, do you intentionally have an awareness or, you know, there's, I don't know what they call it. It's not a cliche or it's, it's know thyself, wherever that came from. Are you on that page where you're always looking and considering who you're being, how you're showing up? Do you have that level of awareness about what, you know, what your blind spots may be looking for them or? Oh yeah. I find myself fascinating. You find yourself fascinating. <laughs> I'm so interested. That, that tongue in cheek there. No, there, but self-awareness, yeah. sure. Like I'm, I'm, you can tell I'm, I try to pay attention to like, how does my day go and what gives me strengths and what gives me, where are my weaknesses? And, and it's hard to get feedback, honest feedback mm -hmm. as we get on in life or our positions. I know a guy who's the CEO of a large 
a very large financial institution, he says, my hardest thing is to get honest feedback from my team. Because mm-hmm. when I'm he- here at the top of the pyramid, nobody wants to tell me anything that's that, that's yeah. not like stroking my ego, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, like, yeah, paying attention and trying to trying to be open and deliberate and understand what your own strengths and weaknesses and, and to be self-aware because that's part of your growth as a human, right? I think that the most successful business guys I know, and, and I've adopted this over the years, you know, nothing annoys me more than when the team, somebody on the team isn't just being straight with me. Like, gosh, are you kidding me? I'm just finding this out now. And you knew this back then or. Yeah. You know, the top guy's always the last guy to find out, right? It's just like, it drives me nuts because it slows everything down. Yeah. You know, decisions get made, directions yeah. get taken. And I'm going, what the hell? Okay. Like, are you building a culture of openness and allowing people to say that stuff? And, and, and it's okay to say that stuff. Here's the thing about that. And, and, and I think this is a cool conversation because I'm driven that way to build that culture, to build that team. I Like I pound it. Like I have workshops around it. I have, you know, AGMs built around high performance and low tolerances and communication and being straight. And it wasn't that many years ago that Brene Brown wrote the book Rising Strong, which to me is just such a foundational book for people to read in terms of communication and how to be on a team and how to communicate. And even when people look you in the eye and go, I'm all in. Are, no, are they're they, not. They it's really? all bullshit. <laughs> you know, it just drives me crazy because well, the, the first moment of confrontation and you're a lawyer, so you probably see this. I don't know how you look at it as a lawyer, but I see that people in general and you and I are both built that way, but you don't, Number one, you don't want what you consider confrontation. So somebody saying to me, Patrick, you got your head up your ass, dude. Like, you got to clean that up. They'll see that as confrontational. And I see it as input, information. Okay. What What do you got going on? What do you mean? What did I do? What do I need to so, change? I don't so see it that you're way. You're not going to take that personally. I don't take that stuff personally. So somebody who does take it personally thinks, I got to filter that and not tell Patrick because he's going to be upset. Drives and me take crazy. it personally if I tell him that. So you, how do you... How do you tell people it's okay to be at that level of, of directness? Well, here's the, it's, it's no, you know, Stephanie and I, I mean, we get fired up. I mean, when we go head to head, you, you know, friends that have seen us go go toe to toe, man, they're like, holy shit, what's going on (laughs) here? Dropping F-bombs at each other. But you know something? (laughs) Here's the thing. We never, we never, without exception, make it personal. Okay. Ever. And the minute you make it personal, you're out. So how do you not make it personal with somebody though? Like I've seen this trick. It's like, let's, let's put the problem there. Like the problem isn't that I don't like you cause you are always late. The problem is we're late sometimes for meetings. Mm-hmm. So it's lateness. It's not you. It's lateness. Is that what you mean? Like objectify the problem that way? It's objectify the problem. It's have agreements. You know, I just had this conversation on a conference call with the team in Edmonton today. I go, guys, why are we having this conversation? We had an agreement. We collectively as a team Mm -hmm. agreed. So this isn't about you're an ass or you're this or that. It's you're fat, you're too short, you're too tall. This is, we had an agreement. We as a team collectively agreed to this and you're breaking the agreement. Mm -hmm. And they go, well, I'm not breaking it. Joe is breaking the agreement. Well, I go, then you have to have a conversation with Joe to say, Joe, you've broken the agreement. We agreed to this. So it's always always in the, the agreements. So when you take responsibility, when you hold yourself accountable for a result, then 
ultimately you have to look at it and go, what am I stepping over? What am I pretending not to know? What am I not willing to deal with? So then you're blaming somebody, but guess what? You got to be the wall that that person sometimes bumps up against. Oh yeah. Yeah. And well, and a lot of what I do in that context is in the context of a meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like, we don't have a, a really deep organization. We've got like our, our law firm is very flat. You got yeah. a few partners and you got associates and that's it. And we yeah. all, we all, for the most part, have our own files that we run. So, yeah. so not very applicable, but in the board world, um, I've had to learn a few, a few good, See, good that's practices. See, thing, right? So, so here, here's, here's some things, uh, running meetings. So don't have a meeting if you don't need to, right? Like, mm -hmm. and don't invite people that don't need to be there. So a meeting with 10 people is a waste of time. Rule of seven, like about seven is the most people that you want in a room. Otherwise, it just turns into a performance, right? Right. Two, tell people at the very beginning what you want to accomplish. So Have an it, agenda as another. Yeah. Different than what you want to accomplish because one is. Yeah, an agenda one, is a list of things we're going to talk about. But right. Like, so agenda, agenda item number two is, is, is uh, to talk about new marketing efforts. Right. No, 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 no. Our goal is to come up with five good marketing ideas by the end of this meeting. What's the intended outcome or yeah. what, yeah, what's, yeah, so what's the intention of the outcome? So people know what are we trying to do in this yeah. meeting, yeah. right? And then in the meeting, encourage people to argue a little bit and you might have to, you know, so you set the tone if you're leading the meeting of how much interaction is going to happen here. And I'm going to call somebody out and we're going to have some laughs. And then we're also going to say, that's a bullshit idea. And you want some real tussling. And sometimes I need to stay out of that tussle because if I'm chairing the meeting, it looks like I've given my opinion already. So sometimes I'm trying to lob little bombs in there and get people going on stuff without me giving my say yet, because yeah, that's going to tone, that's going to tone everything. Right. And at the end of it, a really clear statement of here's who, here's what's going to happen and here's going to, who's going to do it. And here's the deadlines of when they're going to do it. And then sometimes a, a great other trick that I heard from somebody, uh, a really good friend of mine, Trevor Thronis, who's written an excellent book, uh, which I'm in the middle of reading called The Power of People Skills. He's brilliant. One of his like great ideas is at the end of a meeting, every so often, if you're dealing with the same group of people, you say, how do we do this meeting, these kinds of meetings even better? Mm -hmm. So it's not saying, what did we do wrong? Which is a negative question. It's giving the group some, some good strokes that this meeting was good. How do we do it even better? And then you'll get hopefully a little bit better feedback of somebody candidly saying, you know what? I wish we'd spend less time here and, and more time over there. I don't like it that uh, people come late to the meetings or whatever. Like, get your get your stuff out on the table about how to do these even better. So, uh, that whole little rabbit trail for me is about is about running meetings, which is how I have to get things done often in my volunteer world. Yeah, difficult in a volunteer world because you're not working with them on a. You're not even creating a necessarily context for uh, the rules of the game, if you will, around a meeting. So interesting that you bring up you not as the chair, not putting too much input or, or, or actually holding back your input until maybe the, the last, that's, that's a practice that I've learned over the years. I'm not necessarily very good at it all the time, but I, I, you know, as, as CEO and, or as managing partner or as the head of the table kind of thing is, is being quiet yeah. as, as, and letting people really get in and get dirty and figure shit out for themselves is really important. Even if I have the answer, telling what you want to have happen, but don't tell them how to do it. Don't tell them how to do it. Really powerful. I think there's a, you know, because this is once again, I think these are kind of really cool tips that, you know, that you brought up and, and for people listening in, in a meeting, having an intended outcome, really important, having an agenda with your team, have an agreement. You don't come in late and you come prepared. Yeah. 
Those yeah, are, those I always are, start on time, yeah. like maybe one or two minutes late, but if yeah. people aren't there, I'm not waiting for them. Yeah. Because I want to send the message that everybody else's time is way more important than you being late and wasting our time. Right? Yeah. So no tolerance for lateness. Uh, that's a big one. And also when you have meetings, there's an interesting kind of dynamic of start with a few easy things and then put the big rocks in the middle. If you've, if you've got an agenda with a number of items and then put a couple simple things at the end, it's kind of like eating your meal. It's like a uh, little bit of appetizer at the main course in the middle when you're warmed up for it and a little bit of uh, something light at the end, right? We've also, yes, to that and the other thing that we've been doing uh, more recently because we have virtual teams now is we record all our meetings, mm -hmm. but we always, minutes are yes. really, really important. Yes. And yeah. we had, break, we had break to up learn that one the hard way. <laughs> hard way. Yeah. And, and then break out action items, yep. which is who's responsible, when are you yeah. going to get it done? And so then we circle back for that next meeting. It's where you at, what did you get done? Is it completed? Why, why not? Where do you but, need support? But let me ask you this. Do you have in this, this is the whole geeky uh, management thing that I'm really interested in. So you, you look at you look at your people and you know, I, can, I can look at my people. Do you not see there's certain people that are your stars and you don't have to manage them very much. Like nope. they just get stuff done yeah. and they'll take initiative and they'll be interested and they'll be engaged in it. And they don't come and ask you a million questions of how to do it. And they don't need help from all their friends in order to get it. They just go and figure out how to get it done. Or when they hit a wall, they come to you and say, do you want it like A, B or C? Like, what do you want me to do here, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can have more of those people working for you and fewer of the people that aren't your stars or potential stars, they're just people that are just not very productive and they don't have the attitude, that solves a lot of problem about, about managing people, I find. Well, because we spend way, we, we will sit, tend to spend 80% of our time managing those, those troublesome people instead of spending your time on your stars. Well, and I'm going to go a little deeper on that one because yeah. I have a view of that and I, and I've had some success in, in understanding one fundamental thing, which is the more you create a culture and an environment for stars to show up in, mm. the more stars show up. Oh yes. And guess what happens? All of the fringe dwellers, mm -hmm. they got to go. Yeah. They and won't be comfortable there anymore. They won't be comfortable. We as business owners get really frustrated or we are afraid to do that because we too are comfortable and even with the fringe dwellers, they know the business, they know the clients, they know this, they know that. So we, we don't want to go through a retraining process. All the stories we tell ourselves about not losing a key person. And without a doubt, and I've got three operating businesses that I, I've run in over the past seven, eight years for sure. I've really tightened up that up. And I'm only focused on creating an environment for my top performing team. And they really set the benchmark. Mm -hmm. Now, even your fringe dwellers are freaking awesome, but you have to go through some pain and you go through some pain of losing some really great, what feel like, well, they are great people. It's not a, once again, it's not about them personally. Gosh, I don't think I've ever had anybody on my team that I disliked. It's not that, but for whatever reason, it's not their passion. It's not their purpose. It's not what they want to do. They're fooling themselves. And guess what? When they bump into a wall called culture and environment, they are self-calling. Yeah. You know, yeah. and if you let those like they're camping, they're just camping, right? Yeah. If you let those campers uh, stay around, you'll lose your stars because they don't like they don't like being in that culture with those people yeah. that are allowed to be there. And the big, big, big disconnect often is, is we know these things and do we do them in our, in our businesses, right? Because there's, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. Yeah. It's like, oh gosh, this is so inconvenient. Yep. 
And, and you asked about litigation lawyers. Often that confrontational personality is very non-confrontational in their own personal life. Maybe it's like, I got so much there, I don't need any more here. Right. So the most confrontational per- person is often not a very good manager because they don't want to have those confrontations in their own personal space. But you have to be able to get better at that and not be afraid of it and 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 tell people when when things are going well and when they're not going well. And here's how you get here's how you get to the next level, employee. So in I want to go back a little bit to how you interact with your partners because there's lots of partnerships that are out there. You see them and are you learning from others? So are you are you able to, you know, view other partnerships that you're seeing as a lawyer? And do you take that those lessons and uh, have those kind of discussions with your existing partners now? Do you guys have a pretty open conversation? So like Richard Dolan and I, Don Campbell, to a lesser degree, um, but he's still a partner. We consider Don a partner. He's a, a real big part of us. Recently, Jean-Guy, Francoeur. I mean, we're, we're really, we're very respectful of all of our talents. We know what we bring to the table. We're getting clearer and clearer on that all the time. And we're, we have very, very direct and open conversations. And so mm-hmm. I would say that the partnerships are very healthy. Now, that's not to say we don't piss each other off on any given day because we do. And we let each other know that we do. But ultimately, the, that level of communication uh, is pretty healthy. Do you find that in your own partnership as lawyers? Do you guys fight like lawyers? Do you like, how is that? I don't know. I'm just curious. Yeah. Is it like suits? <laughs> yeah. Is it like suits? Yeah. Is it like suits? No, I can't stand watching suits because it's so far from reality. It's like an eMERGE doctor watching ER and going, okay, everything that happened in that episode, yeah. that's what happens to me in one year of being right, an eMERGE right, doc, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you need to understand that, 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 Lawyers, as I've mentioned, we we traditionally are not terribly good at this. So I think our partnership is pretty good, but we are not the poster child for perfection on how to do this. We have a, I would say the four of us partners um, have a pretty deep level of respect for what each other does. We're not terribly collaborative our, with our work. We tend to work on our own stuff, which is different from other professions like architects, where they're they're working with each other on these projects all the time. So we can we can we can be kind of siloed if we want to. Uh, so I think where we are as partners, I would say um, we've deliberately done a few things. We, I don't mind saying this out loud, uh, we, in our partnership, we split the pie equally. We mm-hmm. don't, other partnerships have a, a very measured approach, like your billings were this and you did these other things, do all the numbers right. and, and here's how much your take-home pay is, right. is different from mine. Uh, we prefer to avoid that because... Um, and, and this will be an, this could be an issue for you. Like, how do you Keeps owner <clears throat> owners? How do you what's your take home pay? What yeah. should it be? Keep, right? Yeah. And it's really hard when you start having these conversations about evaluating each other and what your number's too big and I don't like that and you're getting for credit for this and I should get credit for this. Right. So I, I like the simplicity of of everybody's in this together, which is a very partnership way to do things. Mm-hmm. It's not always the best, and it can have some unintended outcomes, and it's it can be messy sometimes. You need to make sure that. If, if that's your model, that you're not too far off in terms of what your productivity is. As lawyers, we can mention our, we can measure our productivity by billings and files. In a pure business, you can't do it that way, right? Like, how do you measure what the value of CEO is versus the value of some other position, right? Yeah, for sure. Hard to put an exact number on it. I guess you have a lot of conversations in your team, and I'm, I'm perfectly open to having a really good outsider come in and help you have those conversations. Because sometimes we just don't know how to. Mm-hmm. right? Or we think we don't have license to really say what we think. And uh, there's probably 
conversations in our partnership that we haven't had because we, we haven't gone that deep yet. I think, you know, that goes back to, you know, there's no problem that can't be solved with great conversation. And sometimes it takes a long time to get there. But when you're really aware and trying to be effective in conversation and shift from blaming to solving a problem, mm -hmm. it, it takes on a whole different dynamic. Well, and, and those are operations issues. Like, how do you, like, are you a good operator in the job that you do? But you might at some point be just an owner of a business and not an operator, right? And when we talk for business clients, we say, like, maybe what you need, we encourage them. We say, what you probably need to do is get to the point where you don't do very much operations. You're just the business owner because then then this business can be sold, right? But while you're still in, and, and so when you're a pure owner of something, the conversation is amongst partners is very different than when you're doing operations together. And it's, 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 Frankly, it's much more complicated and harder when you're doing operations together. So true. Yeah. So true. And so what, I mean, so what are some of the answers to that? Make sure you've got some other talent that can step into your role if you're not doing a good job. So that's just basic succession planning within the business, right? So my partner over there is not so special that I couldn't replace him with the person who works under him, right? So have some succession, have have some kind of an agreement of how do we measure this stuff and how do we talk about when we're not happy with each other. And uh, I, I've, I know of one group of owner operators who they, they actually had a really kind of conversation. One guy was doing operations over there and, and they said, well, they had a long conversation. What's the value of that? Well, one person said, I don't think you're doing a very good job. So I wouldn't pay you more than X and not a happy conversation, but at least they're putting it on the table. Right. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it's just the story we're telling ourselves, you know, and, and the greatest language that, that I still use in, in once again, you know, I've read a lot of Brene Brown stuff, but one of the things that she uses a phraseology is the story I'm telling myself. Mm. And so that if I'm entering into a conversation where I'm seeing somebody that's throwing me off and I look at it and go, you know, the story I'm telling myself is blah, blah, blah. And it's not a way in that way. You're not blaming somebody because the truth is, is that you're, you're experiencing whatever you're experiencing through your filters. So it is just a story. So it's like, it's like, say it, say it a different way. It's like what I'm feeling right now is X, which, which isn't necessarily saying this is true. It's just, this is what I'm feeling right now. The yep. story I'm, I'm, the, I'm telling myself is X. Yeah. The story I'm telling myself is what you're doing right now is really risky to the mm -hmm. business and that you, we could go broke because of what you're doing. Yeah. That's the story I'm telling myself. And, and that way you're actually then opening up the door for that person to express, okay, got it. But here, let me just give you my perspective of it. Because you're, the minute you're looking at something, you know that you're filtering it. That's it. True. And if you have that awareness around yourself, because, you know, you might have a button called money or you might have a button called trust or whatever the conversation you're having, your filters go on automatically. If you know that about yourself, yeah. then you enter the conversation differently. You take responsibility for how you're seeing it and open up the door for somebody to give their perspective of it. Yeah. And isn't it true when you've been, when you've been partners in a business for a while, if it goes well, you kind of know what, what your other partner's filters are. Like, like you're the guy that wants to go all the time. You're the guy that's worried about the downside of being broke. You know, you're the person who sees all the operational challenges in this thing. Like we all have our different lenses. A hundred percent. And we, and if we were with different partners, we might play a different role. Like I might be the gas pedal a bunch of, a bu a bunch of, among a bunch of brake pedal people, but I might be the brakes if I'm with crazy guys that are all gas pedal all day long. Yeah, so it yeah, just yeah. depends who I'm with, right? But if we get good at that and we recognize what our roles are, then some magic happens there. Total magic. Because 
that's that's the key is that it's like you know i was related to sports that's just my natural go-to it's it's knowing the the person that you're on that line you're playing that game with you know how they're going to perform in that particular play of the yeah. game yeah and you can trust you them can to trust do that. them yeah. you, you kind of know what they're going to do but yeah. they're going to bring some artistry to it that won't always be the same, yeah. right? Yeah. And yet the trust level is enough that it's like, I don't need to second guess you. I know that's your area, Yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Gosh, Mark, um, I could go on to this conversation a long time. So this has been great. Having said no, that. It's been fun. We have to wind down okay. our conversation. And uh, I'd like to finish it up. And so great to have you here in the studio, by the way. So thanks for coming thanks out. Thanks for being here. It's been great. My first time, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Poolside Studio, man. A couple of rapid fire questions. Book, I know you recommended a book. What's a book that you're reading that you go to as like one of mine is I use Brene Brown, Rising Strong. I think that's just a great book to to share with people. It opens up a door of conversation and, and understanding. What's do you have one? Uh yeah, I got a bookshelf of books I would read again. And one of them that's on there is that great classic, Good to Great. Mm. Uh, that's just I've read that book probably three times. <sighs> It's such a good book. I open it up and I read different chapters of yeah. it occasionally. It's all that, full of stuff. Yeah, yeah. That was re- that book was recommended to me, and and so this so much for rapid fire. But the uh, that book was recommended to me by somebody I admired a lot and had achieved huge success, almost billionaire status, and and he said you must read that book. Yeah. And it, having him said that came with it gave the book so much more graviton yeah. cachet, right? But it's, and it's so one of those good. books that people will keep. It, the title will keep coming up no matter yeah. where you go, yeah. right? Just like Seven Habits is such yeah. a classic. Yeah. And he followed that up with uh, Built to Last, right? Yes. Those, those two books go together. Um, and I'm in the middle of, uh, as I mentioned, um, Power People Skills by Thronus, which has which is excellent for managing people. That's a good book. Um, yeah, those are some. Cl- if and if you're a professional and you're running a professional firm, it's an old book. It's it's been out for for a long time, but it's a really it's a really it's an it's another classic. Uh, David Meister managing the professional firm. Having done management, I know he gets management, and I've used tons of his stuff. Cool. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Oh, there's so many good ones. Um, well, maybe it's my own. That's my, my login right now is, uh, sometimes I use little quotes to just kind of inspire me, uh, love extravagantly, work usefully, live joyfully. Love it. What's your favorite swear word? I try not to. So if I'm, uh, I'll say gosh, darn and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 You go That's my top. background coming up. <laughs> yeah. If I'm really wound up, it's gosh, darn. Gosh, darn. <laughs> That's great. What profession other than being a lawyer would you like to do? do you architect. Think? Architect. Okay. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? Well done. That's it. On a scale of one to 10, how weird do you think you might be? <laughs> Isn't everybody a seven? What's your most common answer? Seven? <laughs> I, don't like, know. I don't know. Nobody wants to be 10 and nobody wants to be two. Honestly, I get but lots. But you want to be more than average. I get 12. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, um, I... I Probably not more than a seven. I, I'm pretty. I'm a pretty straightforward. Yeah, guy. you're. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Uh, what are you just not very good at? Anything that stand out for you? Oh, I'm not much of an athlete. You're not. No. I mean, fitness I like, but if you like, I'm a terrible golfer. Oh and well, you don't that's, that, that's ninety percent of golfers. Oh, but I'm an awful golfer. Okay. And baseball, anything. I wasn't good in phys ed, so no kidding. Because oh. you get a body type. Your body type has got athleticism written all well, over. I'd it. Like, like to, you should be. A I'd good like to athlete. think it was a lack of opportunity, but um, for whatever it is, I'm not a confident athlete. 
Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Desk. Have you got a favorite tune? Oh, I'm I'm really wired into Spotify right now. Uh, that's a hard one. There's so much good stuff out there. I've been listening to Doobie Brothers. Oh yeah, yeah. gosh, Just, that and, takes you back. And if you're into music and and curiosity, and you like one thing leading to another, okay, like this is like a couple of months worth of Spotify. And I'm all over the place. I'm listening to all kinds of crazy things. Yep. Uh, favorite movie? Oh, um, Apollo 13, maybe. Love that story. Yeah, it is a cool story. Yeah. What are you grateful for? I think we've won the lottery living where we do and being able to do what we do here because the world is full of such awful, difficult places to live. We don't realize it. We have no reason to complain. Mark Workington, I'm grateful for you being here today. Grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks for being on The Everyday Millionaire. It's been a great, great conversation and I appreciate your time. Good. It was great. Thank you. Thanks, man. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.